0: Welcome to Bookaholics. If there's one vice that all picked faculty have in common, it's our addiction to books. And in this podcast, we introduce you to some of our favorite books, recent books, relevant books, but also classic books that we just can't seem to stop talking about. My name is Stephanie Papa, and in this episode, I had the privilege of speaking to poet Stuart Deschell about his newest collection, The Lookout Man, which came out last year from University of Chicago Press. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm so pleased to be joined by Stuart DeShell. Thank you so much, Stuart, for for joining us and taking the time to have a chat today.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Stephanie. It's my pleasure.
0: Stuart DeShell is the author of The Lookout Man, which was released in March last year from University of Chicago Press, as well as the collections Good Hope Road, a national poetry series selection from Viking, Evenings and Avenues, Dig Safe, Backwards Days, all from Penguin and Children with Enemies from University of Chicago Press, and the pamphlets Animate Earth and Touch Monkey, and the chapbook Standing on Z from Unicorn Press. His poems have appeared in The Atlantic, Agni, The New Republic, Kenyan Review, and the anthologies including Essential Poems and Garrison Keillor's Good Poems. He is a recipient of awards from the National Endowment of the Arts, the North Carolina Arts Council, and the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation. So, Stuart, you're originally from Atlantic City. You graduated from the Iowa Writers' Workshop and then you've lived in a few different places along the East Coast, but you've been coming to Paris for years now and you have a long relationship with with Paris and France. When did you first start coming to France and what was your connection with France early on?
1: Well, my original connection with France came through my grandparents, who uh, emigrated from Eastern Europe, and it was my grandmother's idea for them to live in Paris. They came to Paris in 1910 and remained here until 1915, until my grandmother got freaked out by the Zeppelin attacks on the city. Uh, There's still some photographs you can see of the various uh, bombings that they had done uh, during that time. But when I grew up, Uh, Paris was always, because of my grandmother's happiness here and the happiest days of her marriage to my grandfather, who subsequently died after emigrating to the United States, that everything was better in Paris. The wind was better in Paris. The bread was better in Paris. Everything was better here. And when I was in my 20s, I decided to find out for myself. And that was when I first came to Paris. And then I decided to create my own projects and my own reasons for coming, and so I would imagine since the year 2001, I've probably been to Paris some 30 times or more. Mm
0: -hmm. And what about writing here? Is there something in particular that intrigues you in terms of writing? Do you find that you you write a lot when you're in France, uh, that a lot of poems and even poems maybe in in your new collection, The Lookout Man, were conceived in in France.
1: Actually, that's an excellent question because I do not usually write poetry while I'm in France or while I'm traveling. I oftentimes write prose and I keep an extensive journal mm. of my days. But you're absolutely correct that the uh, the germs, germinations of many of these poems were in Paris. Mm. Uh, I just did not write them in Paris. I wrote them back in the United States.
0: One of the things that really strikes me about these poems um, in this new collection, The Lookout Man, are these various shifting manifestations of the self. Natalie Diaz said that she writes hungry poems, and I feel that these poems in this collection are hungry in a sense, in that although mortality and memory of deceased loved ones are very present, there's an appetite for exploring the living self, this this dynamism of one's range of existence and possibility and state of being um and in david blair's review of the book he calls it the generative experiences of the self so maybe we can start there do you do you sort of uh, agree or are you aligned with this idea of generative experiences of the self and in what way
1: Well, I'm totally um, in line with the idea of generative experience. Most of my work comes out of experience, although I like to think of myself as a poet of the imagination. But I like to imagine experience and transform the experiences. Some of the poems, however, in the book, to me, when I think about them, are almost embarrassingly literal. (laughs) But they seem, among the context of the other poems, to be more highly imaginative as well. Um I think the idea of generative experience is pretty important. I'm not really one of those head-in-the-sky poets mm-hmm. who, uh, if you notice, almost all of my poems are located, whether the location is a ship at sea or a mountaintop or a bedroom or a hotel room. Uh, my poems tend uh, to have location in them. Mm-hmm. And I find that that's an element that keeps my work grounded and allows me to generate uh, from it. Uh, I think that uh, the invention and reinvention of the self is an important aspect of my work. In some ways, Keats talks about this as negative capability yes. and my wish to kind of enter into that zone uh, that is no longer all about Stuart Dichelle, mm-hmm. Uh born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and all the other facts of his integument, but is also about the fact that he can migrate from soul to soul and to speak with a sense of others' voices. That is not the same as appropriation of experience, however. This is more of a sense of imaginative um, uh, experience.
0: Mm -hmm. So most of the poems in this collection are quite compact, a little bit on the on the shorter side, we can call them shorter poems, but there are a few masterful longer poems in the collection. And one of them, for instance, is for Oksana Shashko. And this poem really pushes this experience, this idea of the self even further, I think. <clears throat> Shachko was one of the founding members of Femin, a young feminist activist group known particularly around about seven to 10 years ago when they were um, at their height of their activism for their militant disruptions and, and topless protests in particular. And Shachko cut ties <clears throat> with the group in 2013 and dedicated just herself to painting. And very sadly, she committed suicide at the age of 31, in 2018 which is the context of this poem would you mind reading this one
1: no i would like to very much thank you thank you for oksana shashko i am oksana shashko Yet I cannot be her because I am not a young Ukrainian woman stripped to the waist with English words written and paint across my breasts, showing the populace what it otherwise wants to see, looking down a girl's blouse or on pornographic screens. I wish I were Oksana Shashko, because in this life I did not mean to fit the body of a man wearing a towel around his middle, shaving after a long shower, living on a wooded lot in North Carolina, no longer able to contain himself and the boredom that surrounds his skin. But never did I want to be a nun or learn to paint icons or protest on the roofs of public monuments or occupy cathedrals, calling out corrupt leaders of church and state or be kidnapped by government agents who covered me and motor oil in the forest and tried to light me on fire. But I am nonetheless, Oksana Shashko, her naked body, the instrument of social justice, It's an underpants and a crown of thorns, eyes gazing upward. She reconstructed Jesus, inserting her own figure amid the holy iconography. I am free, she drew across the canvas of her skin. I am Oksana Shashko, but cannot pretend I am half my age or stand at an easel and know that even in the dark to a blind person I am not a good likeness of a woman. Yet I wanted to speak, not just from myself, but myselves. I wanted to say something about July 23rd, 2018, when Oksana Shashko hanged herself in her apartment. I had just left the city the day it happened, and her voice caught in my throat.
0: Thank you so much, Stuart. Those last lines are so arresting. Maybe we can just start with, uh, if you'd like to comment on this this idea of I wanted to speak for myself and not myself.
1: Again, I think, you know, it's a kind of complication of identity. But for me as a writer, uh, the idea of only being able to contain myself and to write from my own Personal experience in this world seems like a great limitation to me and not the reason I began to write at all. I think the reason I began to write at all was to be able to get beyond myself, to enter into other selves, not to take over their lives, not to expropriate or appropriate themselves, but rather to try to merge myself. Which is, I think, what I try to attempt in the uh, in the poem uh, that we've been just discussing. Mm-hmm. And art is an interest in the other, mm-hmm. and um, uh, a complete doting upon the self. I would find, uh, at least in my case, to be entirely boring. Mm-hmm. I don't condemn it in others. Some people have had much more interesting lives than I have. Some of them have had horrific lives and have written about it, and um, you know, and their work bears testament to this. Mm-hmm. My life isn't, I was, you know, I did not emigrate on a raft at sea uh, from an oppressive regime. I was not, as I say in the poem, taken by government agents in the forest. Uh, You know, my life as most Americans is fairly privileged.
0: Mm. I think that is political, however, in a way, you know, to kind of reject the idea that you must be, I must adhere to a certain national. Identity, or you must adhere to a certain religious identity, or you might, mu- you know, you in, in a way you're rejecting those kind of labels. Well, I guess
1: that's why my grandparents left Europe over 110 years ago mm. because uh, they did not wish to have the life that would have been insisted upon them had they remained in the countries and cities where they were from.
0: Yeah. So, uh, speaking of these tensions and stakes uh, that are really present in this collection, I think. Something about the way you pinpoint thoughts that the reader might not necessarily want to admit themselves um, and making us feel a bit exposed almost is really striking in this collection um, because you yourself are exposing quite a lot. And this happens sometimes around sex in a few of the poems. You write a really strikingly funny and luminous poem about seeing one's parents having sex, for example, um, or in After the Exhibition, um, in which a speaker gets into bed naked and uh, waiting, he's waiting for the woman he's with, but she gets distracted. Um, Maybe you'd like to read that
1: one. After the exhibition, they came back to the hotel after one of their best days, walking around the city they had come to enjoy. It had been raining and their clothes were wet and the room was cold and he raised the heat and shivered naked under the covers while across the room she charged her phone and texted her children. The look in her eyes was always beautiful to him and he knew he looked at her too much. She told him so. Warming, he was waiting for her to get up from the desk with its electric socket even though there was one next to the bed rising, she said she felt a little sick, then sat in the bathroom posting pictures of paintings they saw at the exhibition at the museum. Before opening the door, she took one of herself in the mirror. In a few minutes, many friends liked it, and one fellow commented that she looked like a masterpiece. (sighs) Brilliant. Oh, boy. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. You understand why this poem's in the third person.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you're exposing um, quite a bit here in this situation. Is this something that strikes you in other poems, poets you admire, or is this something that you kind of consciously do, um, writing something we might not want to say out loud?
1: Well, again, I think it's a great question. I I've never wanted to be the hero of my poems. Mm. I think the pose of the hero in the poetry is kind of, uh, you know, of of several centuries Mm. ago. But on the other hand, I don't wish to pose myself as the anti-hero of my poems. Uh, You know, some of the poets I admire show their weakness throughout their work. A poet like Elizabeth Bishop does Mm -hmm. this in some of her poems. The British poet Philip Larkin does this often in his poetry. But this is, after all, poetry. And if you can't say what you wish to express in it, maybe you have no business writing this at all. I think some people suffer from a great deal of Mm self-censorship and they worry that they can't write about this subject or that subject. You just have to write it first and then you can figure it out later or maybe ask your close readers or friends to decide whether you're taking a risk, as Stanley Plumley once said, or making a mistake. Mm.
0: I think your vulnerability allows us to feel also vulnerable and exposed and um in in a sort of freeing way as well.
1: Well, there's something about it that's also retrospective, too, because in a first-person poem, it's clear that often that the speaker has survived the circumstances of the poem, or in this case, the narrator is uh, distant enough to pull back from it. But, uh, you know, what the characters have at stake in this poem is sort of different than what the narrator has at stake in the poem.
0: Yes. That's interesting. I think another one of these stakes uh, in some of your poems are that you allow a kind of tinge of humour into sometimes very uncomfortable and dark moments. There's a humour in the poem that you just read, um, as well as it being uncomfortable uh, and a bit difficult. Um, This is throughout your work. Really, I think this this narration of dark, often maybe sad moments tinged with a kind of tangy sense of humour. It made me think of Paul Valéry who wrote that there are these actions which can modify ourselves to dispel a kind of interior discomfort, for instance, laughter, he mentions. So so humour can be um, a subsequent shift from malaise in a way. In an interview with Surrey's Press, you mentioned Stanley Kunitz's poem, The Portrait, as an example of this. And I've always loved Kunitz. This is one of my favorite poems. Um, And I love that you say Kunitz is dead serious about humor. Um, You have quite a few poems in in this collection that do this uh, impeccably. Maybe you could read for us um, Lines Above the Tree Line. Okay.
1: Lines Above the Tree Line. With the melting of the glaciers, more bodies are being discovered of lost hikers, missing alpine mountaineers, and even farmers who disappeared with nary a yodel heard from the bottom of a crevasse or the growls of an avalanche tumble. It must be weird to meet your parents fifty years after they left the house, still wearing the clothes of peasants with homemade boots and knitted coats they wore before they disappeared to tend the cows in the lower pasture and left you to raise the younger children. The rocks are falling and I have no helmet, said Helmut, who spoke all the languages of Switzerland and English too, who read Joyce and Beckett and enjoyed the pun of his last conscious moment on the rope. His climbing partner cut him loose after a night making sure He was really dead. So
0: could you talk about maybe a bit about how humor um, is at play for you here in some of these poems and some of these newer poems in the collection and maybe more broadly even in in your life, uh, especially juxtaposed with our present, the context of climate change, which you mentioned in this poem.
1: You know, I read a book when I was far too young to have read it. It was written by an autobiography of the comedian Lenny Bruce. And the book is called How to Talk Dirty and Influence People. And (laughs) I have to say, perhaps it was a corruptive influence on my young life. And uh, I think like many certain poet friends of mine, like Robert Pinsky, for instance, who's from not far from where I grew up in New Jersey. Robert's an excellent comedian and joke teller, mm. you know, and I think many of us, again, of our generation um, enjoyed the telling of jokes and stories. And I fear it's kind of a lost art anymore. I fear like a lot of People I meet, uh, no condemnation, but a lot of younger people I meet uh, don't enjoy telling jokes. They fear the implications of the joke. Mm. They fear that much attention upon them. During the telling of the joke, uh, they would rather make a sidelong quip or something like that, Mm. say a humorous thing, rather than than engage within it. But humor has always been part of my personality Perhaps, you know, it's, you know, the humor one says to oneself as one's being led off the gangplank uh, into the sea. Uh, The poet David St. John generously said of my first book of poems that I was a serious comedian of the human spirit. And I liked the fact that he had said that because I think I am. I don't think I'm a comedian, really, but I think that the idea of... Uh, being comic among the tragic is um, essentially um, my aesthetic. The question is: is not every poem does one or the other? It's the mixture of how of how that comes out.
0: And I th- your work has interestingly also been described as. Having a haunting nostalgia, but I find myself not really being a huge fan of the word nostalgia. I hate here. the word nostalgia. Do you <laughs> yeah, it I as hate it? Well? that
1: word nostalgia. Yeah. yeah nostalgia is like Walt Disneyland or something, you know, sub- it uh,
0: has a sentimental quality yeah, to yes, it. Yes, and yes, and yes. I think your work, um, doesn't is, is has a really unsentimental strain and tautness in it, which nostalgia doesn't carry for me? Um,
1: haunting, I'll take
0: haunting. Yeah. I can see that, yeah. I think you're a master of going back to Kunitz. He says, stripping the water out of his poems, which I really, I really like that phrase. Um, it reminds me of, of some of the people you mentioned that you that inspired you, James Wright, for instance, um, or Miroslav Holub, mm. uh, and. But I don't think that the poems, especially in this collection, don't seem to be, they don't constitute a sort of longing for a time past, which nostalgia seems to constitute. It's more for me of a way of holding what once was right out in front of you in all of its tensions and Mm -hmm. its mysteries. And you don't necessarily attribute a lucid meaning to things, to these memories um, all the time either, which makes this tautness really dynamic. Uh, Dean Young, who I believe you knew, uh, quite well similarly thought that one should not always marry meaning to understanding, which I really like. Um, at the end of the, the poem, Lines of the Prodigal, you write, I could say I was once a happy boy, but I won't, for instance, when you discover how changed your boyhood house uh, was. It's a beautiful poem. And this is so surprising and strange to me. It's it lets an immense vulnerability hang in the air. It's not that you weren't necessarily a happy boy, but you don't say it, you won't say it. Um, So I wonder if you have any thoughts about this kind of counter nostalgia, not yielding meaning uh, of memory too easily. Well, you know,
1: a seminal idea for me, uh, for uh, the poem you mentioned, You know, it's Rilke's concept of the prodigal son, Mm -hmm. that the prodigal son did not leave home because he was insufficiently loved, but this prodigal son left home because he was loved too much. And that was closer to my own story. You know, I was fortunate, even though obviously one is always scarred by one's childhood, but I was fortunate enough to have fairly kind, generous, uh, I wouldn't say always sane, but uh, certainly always loving uh, parents. And so much so that, you know, I... there's a kind of oppression that goes with uh, being loved, and certainly, yeah, that's wrong about the nostalgia because that's uh, that's kind of a very fuzzy uh, way of uh, seeing seeing the past. And I certainly would not wish to uh, re-enter any past uh, like that. I'm very much of the moment. Uh, one thing that I wanted to say that struck me when you were mentioned, uh, my friend, the late Dean Young, was that. Uh, 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 Dean said to me once that uh, he had been, sometimes he and his wife did not understand me or why I did the things I did or said sometimes, but then I remembered, they remembered I was from Atlantic City and it all made sense to them. Perfect. Why so? (laughs) Again, I think because in Atlantic City, you could sort of invent yourself as to who you are. I mean, Atlantic City was the boardwalk. It was Mm -hmm. a carnival world. And and I think that there was a kind of social freedom then. And uh, this was also growing up in the 60s and 70s. Will Reich writes about that and... You know, in, the, in an article, The Clothing of Consciousness Three, and, you know, how, you know, young people in the 60s, 70s could dress and act out as to whoever they wanted to be.
0: Um, and that that is sort of a, a reflection on, you know, not only our exterior present um, and reinvention and what's around us in this context now, going back to thinking what you were, your um, poem about, lines about the tree line, climate change, for example. Um, But also your poems about the present of the self, as you just said, you're a man of the present, but the interior or psychological present, um, I find really striking in your poems, especially perhaps in your poem Lines at the End of the Year, which is um, timely and which was shared quite a bit um, at this this past recent end of the year. Um, Could you read that
1: one for us? Sure, I would be delighted, Stephanie. Lines at the end of the year. No pet ever liked to see me pack, no child for that matter either. When my parents went out, I feared they would never come back from holidays taken without me. Now they will never come back. I have not seen a robin that does not like to drink from a puddle in December and splash and clean under its wings when it thinks no one is looking. Never knew, never thought, always said, I am the Narcissus of the Draining Sink. When my door slams, each leaf in the yard looks back. Where did I go in such a hurry?
0: I absolutely love this poem. There's so much there. I keep coming back to the line. I am the Narcissus of the Draining Sink. When my door slams, each leaf in the yard looks back. Where did I go in such a hurry?" This mention of Narcissus is is so striking here because I think it's the, the only time in the collection you mention um, a classical myth, uh, but it's also seeing one's reflection slip down the drain in my imagination of it. And the question, where did I go in such a hurry, is a question asked about the past, but to the present. I'm wondering if you could just share your thoughts on on this poem. Well, I
1: think you said it uh, probably as articulately or more articulately than I than I than, than I might. But you know. I mean, we're all in a rush to grow up. We're all in a rush to achieve our careers. We're all in a rush to the next thing. And, uh, then you get to my age and you say to yourself quite literally, where did I go in such a hurry? You know, it's a nice place to be, but, you know, did I mean to rush here so much? Is this, yeah. is this where I am? And it seems at the end of the year, of course, you know, it's a cliched time of, uh, stock taking of the self. Uh, but you know the, the beginning of it as a traveler. You know it is so true. You know it's like I you know, hide, tried to hide the suitcase on this last trip from my dog until almost the last hour and a half before I left the house, and then he got a glimpse of it, and immediately his tail went down, his face looked like a crushed beer can. You know mm-hmm. that. Uh, you know, and I remember as a child also uh, watching my parents prepare for trips and. You know, as I said, I had a very close relationship with them, though, you know, as a teenager I was happy when they got out of town and I had the house to myself, but I always feared that they never would come back from these trips.
0: What do you think it is for you that makes you ask that, where did I go in such a hurry? I mean, you mentioned- Death. Being
1: <laughs> Death.
0: <laughs> to put it quite simply, <laughs> you're, you know, you mentioned getting older, yeah. feeling, Yeah maybe a lot of it has to do with with losing parents i you mention that quite often yeah. in your in your book do you think that that was a shift for you in the way of thinking about hurrying and time and how time passes somehow
1: Yes, I do. I mean, I think, you know, it can't help but change your life once you I mean, I jokingly call that other poem Lines of the Elderly Orphan. Mm -hmm. you know, it seems funny to think of this. And I mention to my friends sometimes when, you know, I say, Well, you're an orphan now and Mm -hmm. you know, someone says, I'm an orphan. I'm sixty five years old, it's Mm -hmm. hard to be an orphan then and it's but it's the truth. It's it's a marking of time and you know, we all lose our parents at some time. And uh, for some of us, it's younger in our lives. And that's a certain kind of tragedy. And for others, you know, they live a long time. That's a tragedy, too, for others, for others of us. Uh But, you know, you're really not the same person, I think, once your parents are dead.
0: Mm-hmm. You had said in an interview um, that every part of a poem should be operative and nothing decorative. The parts should engage like the clockwork of a pocket watch or something like that. (laughs) And,
1: uh, I must have been a lot smarter. (laughs) (laughs) Where did I go in such a hurry? (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) But maybe, maybe it's because you're sort of attuned to the operative rather than decorative parts of memory. Um, how we think of death how we how we reflect on our life
1: and how we also can kind of try to fill that that space that it opens up for us you know i think that's some poets are much more interior. I remember my friend Thomas Lux telling a story about visiting the wonderful poet Bill Knott at McDowell Residency in the White Mountains of New Hampshire and all the studios of these beautiful vistas of the mountains. And when Tom went to see Bill, Bill had, had nailed a blanket over his window. And he said, oh, that's too beautiful out there. I can't look at that and write poems. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> But I I understand that. I understand that quality as well. Sometimes it's too much uh, Mm -hmm. to look at. When I lived in New Mexico, for instance, I couldn't write the entire time I lived there. And someone said to me something I put into a poem, an earlier book of mine. I like to grab people's phrases. He says, well, I understand you don't live in a view. (laughs)
0: It's kind of connected, I think, to many of the poems in this book that are entitled lines about or lines on, um, especially the natural world, poems, Mm. lines about the mountains, lines about wind, lines about snow. And for me, this kind of title format seems to take off a certain pressure from the poem. Um, The the poem doesn't have to fulfill any kind of expectation. These are lines about something. It's a kind of presentation Mm. of a thought. What do you think that is doing for you? Well, I
1: think it gave me an operative vehicle to write a lot of these poems, uh, you know, because I was not just basing them on the title itself. I mean, if the poem could have been "The Wind," mm-hmm. but that's not really a very interesting title for a poem. I guess it could be, but you know, it seems a little bit a bit reductive. And I think to say "lines about the wind" mm-hmm. um, by putting that preposition in there, it sort of complicates it in a useful way for me. Um, obviously, there's a history of using lines. Many of Wordsworth's and Shelley's poems are called lines. Uh, I uh, feel that I do write poetry in lines. That's what distinguishes for me poetry from prose. I'm not suggesting that my work is Metrically composed, but I do try to compose it musically. Uh, what music it is is my own creation of music, or my own uh, my own ear for it. And I I guess maybe perhaps I wish to remind the reader of that as well. I had another thought in mind that in Robert Desnos' last book of poems, Etat um, de ve uh he uh has many of the poems are called couplets poems Mm -hmm. and uh well they're all in couplets but they're doing different things in mind because he's playing off of certain latin jazz rhythms he had heard when he had been traveling in cuba before the war Uh, but it was in my mind uh about that and trying to find some vehicle that was also Generative for me in poetry, you know. These poems also, you know, uh, they involve the natural world, many of them, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm really not a nature poet, although uh, some of the poems in here were taken for a uh, magazine. Uh, the Kenyan Review did an issue of nature poetry, mm-hmm. and uh, I think the editors saw these as kind of nature poems, but also a kind of alienation from nature poems.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Especially that makes me think of your poem, Lines About Mountains.
1: You know, again, this is a perfect example. I had written, I had spent uh, time at a residency uh, in Switzerland, and uh, I fell in love with the mountains, the Alps, Mm. uh, deeply. And uh, being me, I kind of read everything I could about it. That's where I even got some of the information about the poem uh, with Helmut in it. And Mm. uh, some of that was actually based on a a true event of a mountaineer who had... um, you know, his partner had kept him on the rope uh, all of the night. But uh, once again, I did not write the poems in Switzerland. It took me months later to come to terms with them. Lines about mountains i just learned that mountains kill more people climbing down them than making their brave ascent and that some have the oldest rocks on the earth small wonder they crumble into avalanche having weathered eons to fall Mountains must get tired with so many people climbing them and bored with the endless boot prints of alpinists in bright garb, the flagpoles jammed into crags, piton and foothold, the kick of the crampon metal ladders across crevasses. More climbers die each summer on Mont Blanc than all the Himalayas, its summit not as perilous but more frequented than Everest or K2. I conclude the nearer mountain is far more dangerous than the distant one, just as we are more likely to be killed by the hands of someone we know. I noticed in reading that poem that there were two things technically in the poem that uh, I realized I've done in many of the poems in here. You know, I don't think about these things much except when I have someone to ask me these great questions. And, and one of them is, you know, how many things are in this? poems in this book. I have lots of nouns and details, especially, mm. say, in a poem like lines about ships at sea. You know, I there's a kind of mania, seems, in this book for nouns. And the second thing in many of the lines poems is, is that I've tried to say one more thing after what could have been the ending of a poem. Yes. And uh, uh, some people, like, have responded a little Backed off by it, like, well, where did that last thought come from? And I said, Well, it came after the other one. You know? mm. I said, I just had one more thing I wanted to say. It may not connect exactly, but I'm gonna push it one more degree.
0: What makes you push it even further and what does that do, do you think? I think
1: it was my teacher in graduate school, the wonderful poet who should be read much more, John Anderson. And he literally always said, try to when you think you're finished with a poem, try to say one more thing.
0: Mm. Do you think that's also in any way connected to a sort of William Carlos Williams aesthetic of No Ideas But In Things, or is that...?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I find myself both enamored by Williams and Stevens, who some people see as opposite forces in poetry. Uh, I don't see it so much. I see Eliot maybe as an opposite force to... Williams than than Stevens, I mean, but both of them are, you know, well, all three of them, but certainly Stevens and Williams are both aesthetical poets in their ways, Uh, you know, Stevens with his Um, you know, wild imagination and large canvas that he paints on and also a high degree of abstraction Um, and Williams with his much closer and tighter focus on the little machine made of words which I'm very fond of uh, thinking and also uh, Williams' aesthetic of what I would call resonant clarity.
0: So Stuart, Although we've we've been discussing quite a few of the, these poems, um, which involve many tensions, many stakes, often mortality, often the uncomfortable situations that we revisit in the past. But many of the poems also in the collection pinpoint the kind of desire for going on despite all that. <laughs> Um, so I'm just wondering if you would read for us to end this conversation, Lines of the Mirage, which I think really touches on this.
1: I'm glad you asked about that poem. I don't know whether I've ever read that poem oh. uh, aloud to anyone except Eddie the Dog. <laughs> well, it's our and you know what, a dog's then... never a good critic. <laughs> My late cat, he was a good critic. <laughs> <laughs> lines of the Mirage. It takes a desert to realize your mistakes the failed mining towns and the mines themselves, the naked mountains never getting closer, illusionary ones waiting, or if you ever found true water amid cottonwoods and shade, perhaps you would never leave, even if it meant you would starve. I would rather be hungry than thirsty, you said, having eaten your horse and saddle. Still in the night you build a fire."
0: Thank you so much, Stuart, for talking to me today.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Stephanie. I appreciate it.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bookaholics from the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking. If you, our listeners, would like to support Bookaholics or the rest of our nonprofit volunteer work at the Paris Institute, I invite you to become a member of our community. Membership starts from three euros a month and enables free public lectures, open access online journals and podcasts, compensation for our course instructors, and everything else we do at the Paris Institute to create a public space for critical and creative thinking. Membership is easy. Just visit our website at parisinstitute.org. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you at the next episode.